You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 28th of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, US President Donald Trump announces a new trade deal with Mexico. Markets appear to like it, but does it actually make any sense? My guests Brian Klaas and Victor Bulma-Thomas will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including French President Emmanuel Macron's vision for a Europe willing and able to take care of itself, an outbreak of far-right hooliganism in Germany, and whether it would be attracting quite the same attention if it was happening anywhere else and je vais prendre pour la première fois for the first time i'm going to make the hardest decision of my life i don't want to lie to myself anymore i don't want my presence in this government to be taken to mean that we're doing enough to tackle this challenge so i'm making the decision to leave the government france's environment minister livens up a radio interview by resigning in the middle of it what are your favorite public flounces that's all coming up on midori house on monocle 24 right now And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Brian Class, Assistant Professor in Global Politics at University College London and columnist for the Washington Post, and Victor Bulma-Thomas, Associate Fellow in the Americas Programme at Chatham House. Welcome both. First, this. Uh, the President is on the phone. Enrique? Yeah, you can hook him up. You tell me when. We will start tonight in the United States, where President Donald Trump, in between picking a fight with a dead senator and complaining about the results that come up when he Googles his own name, has been finding the time to continue selling the US's new trade deal with Mexico, a putative replacement for NAFTA, which he has described as really good and incredible. Other responses have been more equivocal, not least from Canada, which in theory remains a partner to NAFTA. Canada's Foreign Minister, Christia Freeland, was expected in Washington today to seek guidance re what in the wide world of sports was occurring. Um, Brian, first of all, are you impressed by Trump's speakerphone technique? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that, that uh, the gaffe was uh, a bit of a mountain made out of a molehill, but it's, it is something where, you know, it's embarrassing. It was a stupid moment where his staff clearly let him down, and, and it sort of begs the question, if they can't handle a phone call, how can they handle geopolitical minefields around the world? See, I, I was actually quite reassured. If he can't get the speakerphone to work, I'm pretty sure he can't actually launch anything. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, though, I think that this, this um, entire deal, and I say deal in quotation marks, is much ado about nothing as well, because in the end, there was a breakthrough on one small part of negotiations. Nothing was signed. Nothing was announced. There is no legislation which you need to change NAFTA. There is a change in Mexico's government coming up. The House may shift from the Republicans to the Democrats before any sort of deal would happen. And Trump's own government is currently negotiating with Canada at the same time they're negotiating with Mexico. I mean, the thing is, the people who are working on the actual trade deal were blindsided by the fact that the president said Canada is not part of it because they were that same day negotiating with Canada about the trade deal. And and the bigger picture here is that Trump is sort of trying to rework a negotiation that already happened under the Trans-Pacific Partnership under President Obama, which he scrapped, now is 
bringing in some of the same elements from that negotiation and claiming a major victory. It is a smoke and mirrors uh, approach, which is exactly what happened in North Korea. It didn't amount to anything. And yet his supporters will think he's made this major win and a major deal. Um, Victor, this is what Brian outlines there has, of course, been Trump's modus operandi his entire life, even before he went into politics. He says something's going to be huge, amazing, the best thing ever, and so forth. It rarely is, frankly. But by the time everybody figures that out, he's moved on to calling something else fantastic and amazing and the best thing ever. Uh, That being the case, why have markets appeared to bounce in response to Trump's declaration? I think for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is that their big fear was that this would drag on until after Andres Manuel López Obrador became president of Mexico on the 1st of December. And as I've said on this show before, if there's anyone who is more skeptical about NAFTA than Donald Trump, it's uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador. So the implication is that as long as Congress plays ball, this deal uh, may go through before uh, the change of presidency. And I think the second reason is that the changes that have been outlined so far, and we only have a few details, uh, are really very manageable for all sides concerned. Uh, Everyone can claim a victory. More tricky for Canada, I, I agree. But certainly Mexico and the United States can both say, look, we played hardball, we've got a change, we can live with this. I mean, Brian, is is this or is there any aspect of this which is one of those things where there may be a possibility that this is actually a good idea despite the fact that Donald Trump had it? Yeah, I, I think that there's there's no disagreement. I mean, one of the things that I think is a misconception here is there's no disagreement in the U.S. political spectrum that NAFTA needed to be updated. Um, this was a Democratic viewpoint. This was a Republican viewpoint because it's a 1994 trade deal and it wasn't working perfectly. There were need, you know, you need to have changes every few decades in major trade legislation. That being said, as I said a moment ago, that negotiation happened in the form of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It was aimed at updating NAFTA because it included Canada and Mexico in those negotiations. And it was aimed at also isolating China. So what you've effectively done here is you've traded a multilateral negotiation that was hard fought over three years, 5,500 pages, aimed at isolating China. And instead, you've carved out a much smaller negotiation that's in bilateral terms that may end up costing the United States trade, a sort of trade arrangement with its largest export market in the form of Canada. So to call this a win is ignoring what's come before. The individual components of this, Trump's base will cheer for. For example, rules of origin that talk about how much of a car needs to be made in America for it to be tariff-free between the borders. Sure, that's a great thing. But it comes with the cost that potentially now there's uncertainty that Canada is not in the picture. And businesses in the United States, Mexico, and Canada have built their supply chains around NAFTA for decades. So the question is, how do they cope with a regulatory uncertainty that Trump sort of Pre, you know, premature claiming of a deal um, could end up creating that uncertainty that's bad for investment over the long run. Uh, Victor, final thought on this before we move on. Uh, we do need to look, or I think at least we do need to discuss uh, Trump's apparent 
sitting up at five o'clock in the morning, Googling his own name and seething uh, at what turns up. I mean, let, let, let he among us who has never uh, cast the first stone, etc. But, but is, is there anything... I, I may have told everybody too much about my own private life. Um, is there anything uh, to be gleaned from his uh, statement since that the whole thing is rigged against him other than that the internet uh, can be added to the very long list of things that Trump appears to have no idea of the workings of? Well, <laughs> where does one begin? I mean, clearly, this is a, a president of, uh, of, uh, of a unique kind. Um, <laughs> perhaps others will follow him that are similarly bizarre, but uh, at the moment he is of a unique kind, and I think, frankly, we just have to accept him as that. That's the euphemism of the century right there. Uh, it, it is. That, that was a, a masterclass in old-school British understatement, which I think, Brian, we were both privileged to witness. Uh, but let us look now at this side of the Atlantic and at a president of a nuclear-armed superpower who isn't spending these small hours raging at his own search results, at least as far as we know. Emmanuel Macron of France has given a bracing address outlining his view that Europe is going to have to get used to looking after itself. In remarks which would have seemed unimaginable as little as two years ago, the actual president of France said that Europe could no longer rely on the United States for its security. He also spoke of the need to address surging nationalism and what he described as a need to make globalisation more human. Um, Victor, how extraordinary is the spectacle of a French president saying basically that Europe can't rely on the United States? I mean, would even de Gaulle, when he flounced out of NATO's military structures in 1966, have said anything of this sort? De Gaulle might have, but of course the difference is that he would have not got much support from his European partners. The difference is that... Well, as indeed he didn't. Uh, exactly. <coughs> uh, Macron says it and knows that he's pushing on an open door now. So even countries that are, uh, have traditionally been very uh, faithful allies of the United States are beginning to realise that the world has changed and Europe's place in it is going to alter. So... I think that was a very important speech. Of course, it has huge implications for this country, the United Kingdom, uh, not necessarily very uh, uh, pleasant ones either. And I think what I'd just like to say also about the speech is that we have in the last few years focused on three major crises in the European Union. One was the crisis of the euro uh, one was the crisis of migration and one was the crisis of the far right. Now, none of these things have gone away, uh, but arguably they are less uh, intense uh, than they were, suggesting that the EU really does have a future as a geopolitical entity. And in that case, it's going to have to alter the way it does things in reaction to what's happening in the United States, China, other parts of the world. And Macron is very quick to see the opportunity that this presents for France, particularly given the difficulties that uh, Merkel has in Germany. But Brian, this is not a, a vote of confidence in future America from Europe, is it? This is not Europe saying, well, OK, it is what it is, but we can, we can ride this out for four years and then hopefully by 2020, if not sooner, there will be a president who is, well, to, to borrow Victor's formulation, perhaps less unique. Um, annoyed though I usually am when people put modifying adjectives in front of the word unique. It is, it is, it, <laughs> sorry, this is a whole other thing that I'm drifting off into here, but, it, but it's, it's almost as bad as diffuse versus diffuse. Drives me 
nuts. But is is Europe actually having now being forced to consider that the United States is on a trajectory which may outlast Donald Trump. Yeah, and uh, Macron is not alone in this. The German foreign minister also raised the possibility last week of creating an international banking system that allows Europe to circumvent American banking institutions for international financial transfers. So there are people in both the French and the German governments who are thinking about concrete ways to effectively siphon America or si- siphon Europe off from its dependence on American security and, in some ways, financing. Now. There's a short-term and a long-term uh, view on this, I think, that, are, that, that looks different depending on which one you're looking at. From my perspective in the short term, this would be good news because I think that Europe does need to spend more on its defense. I think it is good for them to establish more independence from the United States. But in the long term, the cost of that and the origin of that is that Europe is looking at the United States as a potential adversary. And that's much, much more damaging than any potential short-term upside. But as you rightly point out, this, this question is, is Trump the new normal or is he an aberration? That's one that they're rolling the dice on now. And I think what really worries Europe is not Trump, but the fact that a significant portion of the U.S. population cheers when he bashes Europe. Mm. And those people are not going away. Whether Trump goes away or not, uh, though, that, that base that he's tapping into of anti-European sentiment is real. And that is why they're probably hedging their bets and thinking about what the post-Trump future uh, might hold. Uh, Victor, is this speech by Macron, though, it's, it's not just an outlining uh, of a potential European future. Is he making a statement uh, of what he sees as a, a French future in both senses of that phrase? Does, is there an element at which President Macron perceives the current termi- turmoil, rather, both in the United States and the United Kingdom as an opportunity for France? Of course. He's never seen a contradiction with, between promoting Europe and promoting France, quite rightly. Um, this is a very good example of where, uh, to use that dreadful phrase, win-win, he feels that he can uh, uh, benefit from uh, um, emphasizing an issue in which France will undoubtedly play a leading role, but which is also very good for Europe. I mean, which strikes you, Brian, as as his priority there, though? There was a remarkable phrase in what was a remarkable speech where he he sort of asked uh, with a rhetorical snort, uh, do China and the United States think of Europe as a power with similar independence to their own? Now, implicit in that uh, is a suggestion that he thinks it would be a good thing if China and the United States were compelled to start thinking of Europe uh, like that. But is there any doubt as to who Macron thinks Comes Europe's de facto leader, especially following Brexit. It does leave, uh, it leaves France as the only nuclear power uh, within the EU, for example. Yes, and that's where I think this question about NATO is also extremely important because it's the area in which Britain enters the picture within Europe still. Um, Within the European Union itself, obviously, France is the only major superpower that can launch any sort of military action virtually anywhere in the world at short notice. And that's a, a very important form of hard power. Um, so I think, you know, Macron is trying to play the nationalist card while he also plays the super nationalist card, because ultimately, as Victor pointed out, you know, Europe getting more powerful is also Macron getting more powerful. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Andrew Muller, Brian Class, and Victor Bulma-Thomas. Coming up next, the never encouraging spectacle of the far right on the march in Germany. How do we make better cities? Places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials from great transport to perfect places to work, as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, 
the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful, large format books is available later this month. Find out more at monocle.com shop. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Brian Klaas and Victor Bulma-Thomas. To Germany and a story from the condemned to repeat it if you don't learn from it file. The streets of Chemnitz are mercifully quieter today after two days of sporadically violent exchanges between what we will charitably describe as far-right activists and counter-protesters thereof. The clashes followed the murder at the weekend of a local carpenter and the subsequent arrest of an Iraqi and a Syrian on suspicion of committing the crime. One German MP Markus Fronmeier from Unsavory Xenophobes Alternative for Deutschland tweeted approvingly of the idea of vindictive sectarian vigilantism, though this was not widely regarded as an outstanding success last time Germany tried it. Um, Victor, is this kind of thing, which was not to undermine the seriousness of it, but in the grand scheme of things was not um, you know, notably atrocious violence, is it attracting more attention than it might because it is happening in Germany? And should it be, I guess, is the the rider to that question. Yes, I think uh, it's right. When these things happen in Germany, they raise all sorts of uh, grim historical uh, precedents. Uh, whereas if it was happening in Finland or something, we would probably not pay so much attention to it. That doesn't obviously discount from the seriousness of the matter. But I think uh, one of the things that... Um, there's not much to be encouraging about this, but one of the things that's encouraging is that when these incidents take place in Germany, it, there are usually major counter-demonstrations. And I think as long as you have that, you know you have a very live, living um, uh, society which is not going to be overwhelmed by the far right. Uh, Brian, the difference, I mean, things like this have always happened in Germany, uh, as they have always happened everywhere. What has changed, of course, in Germany since the last election is you now have a, a hefty presence in the Bundestag of a political party uh, who, uh, and again, let's try to be charitable, who, whose sympathies are perhaps not a million miles uh, from some of the less pleasant people who are demonstrating in Chemnitz at the weekend. How much more dangerous does this make a situation like this, especially when you have have actual members of parliament, um, if not actively encouraging it, then certainly not discouraging it. I think it does make it significantly more dangerous. And I think we're seeing reflections of this in polling. So um, I've seen a poll out, I believe it was two days ago, that put the AFD in second place now in German national politics, tied with SPD for 16.5%. Now, 16.5% is not an electoral majority, but to be in second place over one of the main political parties um, in recent decades in Germany is alarming for the far right. And in some parts of eastern Germany, uh, they're polling above 25%. So you know, I think the reason why Germany is so, you know, alarmed by these types of things in ways that, as as Victor said, Finland might not might not be, is because if people in Germany are willing to accept this, that's really it's a it's the last bastion of places where we should think we'd learn from history. It's the place where it really should be a wake up call that even in Germany. The people are flirting with these neo-fascist ideologies, and I think it is cause for concern now that they have representation, and they're going to continue to be a part of German political life for the foreseeable future, converting people, unfortunately, to this ideology. Uh, 
Uh, Victor, possibly paradoxically, do you think there's a reluctance among post-war German politicians to make explicit reference to Germany's history when confronting situations like this? Do they assume perhaps that there's no need to make that point because surely uh, everybody should be well aware of it? They should be, and for a previous generation of Germans uh, was very willing to make that. If you know any of Willy Brandt's speech uh, or others like him was always referring to the Nazi past and the need to move on and to come to terms. This with is, that of course, I guess that that quote often attributed to Angela Merkel that we'll only know whether Germany's learnt the lessons of the past when the last of the generation that remembers the war has died. Uh, yes, and but I think what this uh, coming back to your question, I think what this shows is that. Uh, uh, Germany, German politicians constantly have to keep uh, addressing these issues. On the more substantial question, which is the the rise of the far right in Europe, because this is not just a German phenomenon. We have it in Britain. We have it in in many different countries. It probably is the the, the greatest threat currently facing the European Union. I think it's more serious than the, the Euro crisis or the migration crisis that we talked about. Of course, it is related to the migration crisis. Uh, but the interesting thing is the extraordinary rate at which uh, migration into the EU has dropped uh, in recent months. So that if you are looking for a kind of silver lining, you'd have to hope that uh, in years to come, some of the pressures that have led to the rise of the far right will, will ease. I mean, Brian, have Europe's politicians yet figured out, because it is obviously a vexed question, it would be pleasant to be able to make policy without having to consider at all the opinions or responses uh, of the likes of Alternative for Deutschland. But you, you, politicians, I guess, have to operate in uh, the realm of what is possible and what is doable. How much... I guess, attention should you pay to the possible responses of militant xenophobes in forming immigration policy? How, how many limits do you place on immigration just to keep the peace? That's a very difficult question. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the things that you can do to try to make it less difficult is simply by countering misinformation and countering misperception. Because, there have been surveys across the United, across uh, the European Union, the Western world as well, in the United States, that look at perception versus reality. For example, with the proportion of the society that is Muslim, and and, and everywhere it's like three to five times mm. as you know higher than it actually is. And in the United States, people most often guess I think fourteen percent, and it's actually less than one percent. In France, they guess thirty percent, and it's actually closer to seven percent. So, you know, I think one thing that politicians should be <laughs> saying is that look. Look, this demographic change that you fear, A, is not as scary as you think, B, is not as pronounced as you think, and, and C, I think the, the other th final point is that AFD is rising most in the places with the least migration. Uh, and, and this is a point that's happening. Way, yeah, exactly. Well, finally uh, tonight, we will return to France, where the Environment Minister, Nicolas Hulot, has had a sudden existential meltdown during a radio interview and resigned live on air, as we heard at the top of the show. Now, all the Monsieur Hulot's holiday jokes have been done by now, so we decided instead to ask the panel to pick their favourite public resignations. Um, Victor, we will start with yours. Uh, it is a relatively recent one from the world of media. Last night, RT made international headlines when one of our anchors went on the record and said Russian intervention in Crimea is wrong. And indeed, as a reporter on this network, I face many ethical and moral challenges, especially me personally, coming from a family whose grandparents, my grandparents came here 
as refugees during the Hungarian Revolution, ironically to escape the Soviet forces. I have family on the opposite side, on my mother's side, uh, that sees the daily grind of poverty. And I'm very lucky to have grown up here in the United States. Uh, I'm the daughter of a veteran. My partner is a physician at a military base where he sees every day the first-hand accounts of the ultimate prices that people pay for this country. And that is why, personally, I cannot be part of network funded by the Russian government that whitewashes the actions of Putin. I'm proud to be an American and believe in disseminating the truth. And that is why, after this newscast, I'm resigning. That was RT anchor Liz Wall uh, handing in her cards live on air in March 2014. Uh, your choice, Victor. I have to say I'm, I've been unimpressed by those principled resignations from RT, of which there have been a few. This strikes me as akin to taking a job at Vatican Radio and then complaining when you were made to do a whole lot of Catholic stuff. I mean, you, if, you, if you sign up for a gig at RT, you know what you're getting into, or sh certainly you should know what you're getting into. Well, I chose that, that resignation speech because there's something so extraordinary contrasting between uh, this young woman who is a sort of epitome of American, you know, motherhood and apple pie and, <laughs> and Midwest virtues and all the rest of it, working for RT. And uh, clearly with a view of the world and of the United States, which, frankly, makes RT a very odd place for her to work in the first place. And I just found that contrast very striking, plus her uh, either deliberate or maybe not deliberate uh, mispronunciation of Putin. Well, moving seamlessly along <laughs> to another epitome of Midwestern virtues, Brian, um, we, <laughs> you, you, you have chosen one uh, fr from my own homeland, uh, which was a very niche choice. I have to say, I, I think I missed this uh, at the time. In fairness, this happened during September 2001, when I think a lot of us could be... Uh, forgiven for missing stuff that was going on elsewhere, but please do explain. So this is uh, Mal Meninga, who is uh, a, a famous rugby player and now a coach in Australia, who, you know, as so many people do uh, once they achieve fame, gets approached by a political party and decides to run for office. Um, it's, it's unclear whether it was his idea or not, but given what happened, I, su I suspect it was not his idea. And uh, this is what happened. This is one of the, the shortest political careers in Australian history as it happened. I was just a person out there making sure that I was, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm buggered. I'm sorry. Mal Meninga, it didn't last very long. It's, it's, not, it's not quite... Um, it's not quite one of the most stirring oratories uh, in Australian political history, but I, I admire its honesty. I think it's so wonderful how you resigned mid-sentence. He realized as he was speaking that he was in over his head and didn't even finish the sentence. And that, I think, is worthy of our respect. Well, I, I, I have myself chosen a, a selection of oratory uh, from Australian history. This, I, I fudged it a little bit as an excuse to just get one of my favorite speeches uh, on the air. This is not so much a resignation speech as a refusal to resign speech. I will try and compress the backstory as fast as I can. This is from 
November 1975, uh, when Gough Whitlam, the Prime Minister of the day, was controversially dismissed from office uh, by the then Governor-General, Sir John Kerr. Now, the proclamation dissolving Whitlam's government was read out on the steps of Parliament House by the Governor-General's Secretary, uh, and he signed off his proclamation by uttering the phrase, God save the Queen, at which point Whitlam bustled to the microphone and uttered the following... Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Gough Whitlam, Remembrance Day, 1975. R- rather unhappily for the, the romantics and any of our listeners, the, these, the matter was settled at a federal election some weeks later at which Whitlam's government was roundly thrashed. Uh, but, but that phrase has passed into... Uh, well, you, you can literally now buy it on fridge magnets and tea towels uh, and coffee mugs. I mean, but just uh, as, as a, a final thought, Victor, what, what makes a, a great resignation? Oh, if it's live, you mean? Well, just any great resignation. What What do you really need to do to, to, to nail it to the history books? I think the ones that are done live, it's difficult because it's uh, too unscripted, if you like. I think the best are people like Robin Cook who resign and then make a speech in which they explain why they resign and they put, a, they put their heart and soul into that speech and it's remembered for decades to come. I fear that Young Lisual, who I chose, will not be remembered in decades to come. It, it, it does. It just, yeah, just finally, I think it's quite difficult to name, nail it spontaneously. I do remember seeing Gough Whitlam uh, interviewed 10 years afterwards, I think, and he was never a man to underestimate uh, his own abilities. And he was asked uh, if he thought in retrospect that, you know, given the moment, it was rather a cheap shot. And he replied, I think what I said for an impromptu speech was magnificent and memorable. Uh, and on that self-assured note, that does bring us to the... The end of today's show. Brian Class and Victor Bulmer Thomas, thank you for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Carlotta Rebello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Anna Savetska. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900, it's Monocle on Design with Josh Fennett. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. Midori House returns tomorrow at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs>